The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the second Doctor story, The Mind Robber. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hey, Father Corey. How's it going? And Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, we would really appreciate it if you would go at the end of the podcast. You don't have to go right now. Keep listening. Write an Apple podcast review or wherever you can write podcast reviews uh, on whatever service you use. And also, please share the podcast with your friends. The only way this podcast really grows is by recommendations from people who are already listened. And if you know other Doctor Who fans, you definitely want to recommend it to them because when the specials come out later this year, as we talk about this in uh, in August of 2023 or September of 2023, when you listen, uh, that is about the time when those big specials are coming. We have lots to say about that. So please share they're, the podcast with them now. They're going to be coming in November. That's right. Right. So uh, you'll you'll definitely want to hear our uh, episodes on that and want to share that with your Doctor Who loving friends. So please do that. And uh, I also want to recommend to you to get your very own Secrets of Doctor Who T-shirt or phone case or various other kinds of merch, which you can find by visiting sqpn.com slash merch. I want to tell you that uh, there's going to be some great listener feedback at the end of the episode. So stick around for that. And finally, last preliminary. I want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network you are sure to enjoy, and perhaps one of my favorites, which is PlayStation Portable. That's one your opportunity to pray the Liturgy of the Hours with the whole church around the world. And you can find that wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash PSP. So we are talking about the second Doctor story, The Mind Robber. And uh, Jimmy, could you give us a recap of what it's about? This week, the second Doctor, Jamie, and Zoe make an emergency takeoff to escape the volcanic eruption at the end of their last adventure, The Dominators. To do this, they use an emergency circuit that will take them out of the universe. They end up in a strange void where someone is trying to trick them into coming out of the TARDIS. They try to flee again, but the TARDIS explodes and comes apart. They then find themselves in another strange environment where they start encountering baffling characters and weird situations that put them through various tests. Eventually, they realize that the characters they're encountering are all from works of fiction and that they're in the extra-dimensional land of fiction. They also learn that the person putting them through the tests is called the Master. But he isn't a Time Lord because this is only the second Doctor, not the third. Instead, he's a human author from the year 1926, and he's being used to generate and manage the land of fiction for intelligences that are like small children who are not capable of entertaining themselves. He's also no longer young, and the Doctor, who has passed all the tests, is the perfect candidate to replace him. The intelligences also plan to transport all of humanity to the land of fiction and turn them into controllable fictional characters, leaving the Earth for the intelligences to conquer. The Master arranges to have Jamie and Zoe turned into fictional characters by having them pressed between the pages of a giant book, and in that state, they trick the Doctor into becoming part of the computer that controls the land of fiction. The Doctor and the Master then engage in a battle of wits, creating civil war between the fictional characters under their control and writing new scenarios involving them. 
The doctor restores Jamie and Zoe's free will and has them get out of the book that they're pressed inside, and the two companions then begin overloading the computer that controls the land of fiction. And they, the doctor and the master, who has now been freed from the control of the intelligences, escape. But before they do, fictional robots were given the order to destroy, and they proceed to destroy the equipment controlling the land of fiction. This returns all four real people to the real universe, including the Doctor, Jamie, and Zoe, who discover themselves in the TARDIS, which comes back together. The end. All right. So, uh, overall impressions of this story, Father Corey? It was it was fun in the sense of the different um, fictional characters. You know, I like kind of like the idea of how Gulliver could only speak lines from the book, including lines describing what he did. So yeah. I realized at that moment that, you know, instead of <laughs> instead of uh, uh, actually saying, well, yeah, this is something real that happened. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was kind of an interesting conceit. Of course, there was the different characters. Including Carcass, who was, you know, some like wrestler superhero, which was kind of an interesting <laughs> character, uh, kind of a fun character from the year 2000 comic strips. Yeah. Um, so it was it was fun. I mean, there was this was very much like the epitome of running through corridors, however. And so yeah. there were interesting things followed by running through corridors with interesting things followed by running through corridors. So it was but it was I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed it. It was just. It was about maybe one episode too long, and that's because you had the the breakup of the TARDIS as the first episode, and that was yeah. the entire first episode. So, how about you, Jimmy? Your overall impression? Yeah, I enjoyed it. It's a nice change of pace. Um, this is the only time in in Doctor Who TV history so far that the Doctor has gone to the land of fiction. And it's interesting to get to see these fictional and mythological characters. Um, Patrick Troughton and Wendy, Wendy Padbury, who plays Zoe, named this as their favorite of the stories they did. Um, it is, a, you know, it's it's paced reasonably well. It's a five-parter. Originally, it was planned to be a four-parter. but And the preceding story, The Dominators, was planned to be a six-parter. But they trimmed the Dominators back by an episode, so they needed to expand this one by an episode. And they basically cobbled together episode one. Um, if you watch episode one, it's, it, it's, as Father said, it's all the material leading up to the destruction of the TARDIS. And so they they take off from the Dominator's planet. They end up in this strange realm that's all a, a white void. Jamie and Zoe get tricked into coming out of the TARDIS. The Doctor has to rescue them. And all of that takes 15 of the 21 minutes. Um, and, and so it's, but despite that fact, it's pretty dramatic. You know, I think for yeah. essentially an episode they wrote for padding, it's actually effective padding, um, at least given the television of the time. And so I, I enjoyed this. It was, it's not my favorite episode is including my it's not my favorite Patrick Crouton episode I'd have to think about what that would be but um but it was enjoyable yeah I I thought the premise was was clever I like the idea of you know the doctor ending up in the land of fiction where fictional characters become real and that sort of thing I, that, that that was clever and interesting and an interesting idea 
you know, this is still early days, as we all know. And so a lot of these things like the doctor in the in New Who traveling through the void to get to another reality and all that other stuff is still way in the future. This is still fairly early in Doctor Who. And so things like traveling to another kind of reality is 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 brand new. And I thought that I think it was a clever use of this and the going to the doctors, you know, the Doctor Who mandate to be more educational you know to that idea of educational so bringing in literary characters to expose kids to the, the these these stories i thought that was clever i agree i like the the uh gulliver only speaking lines from the book interesting they didn't they they, they kind of stopped with that like that was the only character who did that yeah um, which, rapunzel didn't do that for example yeah at, uh, at least was, not in any version of rapunzel that i right. know of she was yeah, kind of repetitive yeah. where she would ask, you know, she asked, you know, are you a prince? You know, and no pity and just <laughs> right. repeat that line. But are you a woodcutter's son? Yeah. <laughs> um, the, then uh, I, I liked the carcass. That was a kind of a funny, uh, interesting character. And uh, we, Zoe we should, taking him should, out. Yeah, we should probably explain who that is because he's they since Zoe is from the future. They included fictional characters from the future. So it's not all ones that we, the 20th century audience, would be mm -hmm. familiar with. And so the carcass is a superhero in the future. He's got a German accent. He has a ridiculous bodybuilder suit on to make yeah. him make him look like he's really ripped. Um, but um, he's from the year 2000. That's when his stories appear, which was in the future at the time. And he was published by the Hourly Telepress. So mm -hmm. this is kind of headline news at the time. Yeah. You know, it's a, only it's every hour instead of every half hour. And probably a forerunner of, you know, web web uh, publication, you know. Well, was, we, yeah. Well, they, they expressed it like a comic strip, you know, like the, the, the yeah. daily comics uh, that you used to find in the papers. I don't even know if they're still in the papers or not. They are. Still, but still are. I haven't, yeah. I haven't picked up an actual paper in probably a decade. <laughs> but um, but yeah, like, you know, it was it was the daily comic. One of the daily comics at the there, time. There's a great bit because the doctor doesn't know who the carcass is. And so he, for once, the doctor serves as the audience surrogate who needs the exposition to find out what's going on. And Zoe explains it to him. And, you know, she's from the year 2000. And she says, you've been to the year 2000. And the, the carcass is about to lead them up this precipice to get to the main control center. And Zoe says, well, you've been to the year 2000. And the doctor says, yes, but I hardly had time to follow the strip cartoons. And yeah. Zoe says, well, you'd better start following this one. He's halfway up that cliff. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good, good clever uh, line there. Um, so the, I, I want to go back to the to the beginning of the story, because um, I, I find, you know, I was amused by the, the, the TARDIS getting buried by this soap bubble lava. I thought that was mm -hmm. kind of a fun little prop. They, they had to come up with a way to have it buried in lava. Things uh, get buried in soap bubbles a lot in Patrick Troughton's time. <laughs> yeah, the prop guys were like, hey, soap bubbles again. I like soap bubbles. Uh, so I thought that was uh, clever. And so they had to have this. Uh, it was it was interesting that. Jamie is like, so, so we're safe in here, right? Even though we're going to get covered by lava. And the doctor's like, sure, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's this question, uh, are, you know, are you safe in the TARDIS if you get buried by lava? Uh, and, uh, it, and that was an open question there. So I thought that was a, you know, a funny turn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And the doctor was like, well, I think we'll be fine. We'll be okay. And Jane, Jane, I love Janie's line about, well, we'll be up to our neck in lava, or the TARS will be up to its neck in lava shortly. So better figure this out. <laughs> and the doctor didn't want to use the emergency unit. He kept like hemming and hawing. It was Zoe who actually, I think it was Zoe who hits the button, right? Yeah. Yeah. To, to send it's them kind off. It's of kind of an accident, but it gets hit. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so they end up in this <laughs> white space, basically the, uh, the, I keep thinking, thinking of it like the uh, Q space and in, in the next generation, you mm-hmm. know, where that's everything is everything is white in uh, where you are. Very, very obviously uh, a little, you know, alcove of a set that they just painted white. And yeah. Yeah. And, and apparently it worked a lot better on TV than it does on DVD, because on on TV at the time, the resolution was so low. Mm-hmm. It looked like a white void with that was just featureless. But now yeah. you can see oh, there's the dividing line between the floor and the wall. Yep. Yeah, I noticed that. The I, what I noticed was when the doctor comes out of the TARDIS, we get a reverse angle shot, and we see the TARDIS, and it's been painted white, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's just this brief moment. They don't really do anything with that, and I thought, wow, they painted the TARDIS white just for that shot. Yep. Yeah, and then we end up having a Zoe and Jamie their costumes changed to white to kind of indicate mm-hmm. they're in this weird alternate reality, and and the, they keep. They get lured out of the TARDIS by these mm-hmm. images on the you know external scanner. Jamie keeps seeing the Highlands of Scotland and hearing bagpipes, and Zoe keeps seeing her hometown. Uh, is she on the moon, or like, was, like I forget. They don't clarify from. it. Yeah, okay. They, 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 at least not in this episode. They don't clarify right. it. But she's in fact Zoe is is like I I, I said to myself I wrote this as a note like she is way too insistently curious about what's outside in the nothingness like, mm-hmm. like over the top like, like you know, zoe calm down <laughs> you know, <laughs> sit down have a cup of tea relax you know until we get out of here but she was and and so i eventually i kind of got it was the influence of whatever was mm-hmm. luring her out do we do we get the sense that this was the master brain from the land of fiction well, it's either the master. So we uh, there's sort of a hierarchy in the land of fiction. And by the way, the land of fiction is a bit of a misnomer. It's not a it's not a dimension where fiction is automatically real. Mm-hmm. It's another dimension where you've got these intelligences who have a computer referred to as the master brain, which is hooked up to a human who is an author who is the master. And the master uses the computer system to generate things from work. So it's like a holodeck, basically, um, under the control of this human author from 1926. Although why he knows about the carcass, I don't know. Um, But you've got this hierarchy of the intelligences are in charge. They've got this master brain computer that they kind of interact with. And then the master brain computer interacts with the master who interacts with other systems that make things real. Or well, there's, mm-hmm. there's also a sense that it could, there was a sense of telepathy there where they could read minds as well. Mm-hmm. Cause there are a couple of times where, you know, the doctor and the companion had to assert this isn't real. And then it would turn into the, the full, you know, the picture of it instead of an actual right. object. Yeah. Sometimes it's, like when they're being attacked by a unicorn, they'll, the, the doctor will make the companions yell with him that it isn't real and it'll turn into a 2d photo standout cutout of, of yep. the unicorn. And so that, right. that's, that's, I, I guess I figured that was just the carcass came from Zoe's, you know, Oh, we need help. Who could help us? Oh, maybe the carcass can. And there he that is. Could be. Yeah. yeah. You know, the other interesting aspect is, is 
if the, the doctor realizes that if he writes himself into the story, he becomes a fictional character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that becomes a, a tricky, especially in that battle of the minds between, mm-hmm. between him and the master later on, he has to keep avoiding, you know, uh, writing part of the story where he's in it, where he mentions himself. And that's a very tricky exercise. Uh, I did think that was a clever aspect as well. I, I thought that was extremely clever. And it reminded me of something that uh, that they've done a couple of times on in Big Finish. There are two Big Finish stories that I love that feature a character named the Word Lord. The Word Lord is the equivalent of a Time Lord, but he's from a dimension made of words. Mm. And so he has, instead of a TARDIS, he has a, a transport device called a Cordis, and he gains power from what people say. And so if um, if someone says, let me think of an example real quick. Um, if somebody says, uh, you know, uh, oh, his name, I, I forgot to mention, the name of the word Lord is nobody, no one. Mm. And so if 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 someone says, well, nobody can defeat the doctor. Then right. no nobody can defeat the doctor. Yeah. <laughs> and and nobody can get out of the TARDIS. Well, then nobody can get out of the TARDIS. And so um, he's very dangerous and you have to watch what you say really carefully. <laughs> and um, and and this gets played against the doctor, particularly the seventh doctor, who is, you mm. know, the clever one. And um, and they're really well done. I have I actually have an idea for a nobody, no one plot that I would love to write for Big Finish, but where the doctor almost writes himself into the story and then has to pull back was just reminded me of the word Lord mm-hmm. and the kind of dangers involved in that kind of a story. Mm. So another element of the story are these white robots that show up in the, uh, the empty void of the first episode, but then they show up again throughout. They're sort of the, mi- the minions of the intelligences running the land of fiction, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think. And yep, yep. Uh, they're, they're kind of, um, I, I kind of think of them almost like Cybermen in the sense of they're just there to menace. Uh, you know, they don't mm-hmm. have the personality of the Cybermen, but they're just, they, they're just there to menace. They don't really f- function any um, right. Differently they're, than the tin soldiers that show up as well. Yeah. Except they've got their blaster on their yeah. chest. They they also are from the land of fiction. They're fiction from fiction because these exact robots had appeared in a couple of British sci fi shows shortly before this. Yeah, that's right. They were in the prop uh, department. <laughs> <laughs> but I was curious that they used the white robots and the I call them white, white robots, the robots and the tin soldiers, the, the toy, toy soldiers, they're toy like soldiers. wind up toy soldiers, except yep. their life size. Yeah. They kind of use them both for the same purpose. It was interesting that they would use them both mm-hmm. in the same. In well, the same the, story. The, it, it seemed to me like, of course, you had the white void area and that's when you saw the white robots. And then you had the Citadel. resaw them again. But out in the actual forest of words where it was actually, mm-hmm. you know, like typewritten letters. Uh, that's when you saw the toy soldiers. I like that forest of words thing too. Yes, as you see it, they look like just these 
blocks that are kind of tree-ish. I mean, they they wouldn't. But as Jamie climbs up above, and we'll talk about Jamie in a second, uh, as Jamie climbs up above and sees from from a higher perspective, he realizes they're all letters and they're, they, they're all quotations from literature. In fact, he's standing on the letter on a giant version of the letter S, which he can mm-hmm. recognize once he gets on top of it. And yeah. he and the doctor figure out they're all proverbs like look before you leap and things like that. Yep. Right. By the way, speaking of interesting visuals in this episode, you know, you just mentioned the word forest and I mentioned the white TARDIS. And um, the most interesting visual is Zoe's brand new gray sequined cat suit. (laughs) And we get get to see a lot of that. It's my (laughs) one of my favorite companion costumes. (laughs) And and after after the TARDIS blows up, you know, Jamie and Zoe are like clinging to the console spinning around in space and we get to see a lot of that cat suit. Yeah. This is, this, that's one of the, the famous clips that you'll see a lot of times in like clip comp- compilations from classic who is, is them hanging on there. She's screeching and look, the doctor. Yeah. And so, it, it, as with Leela, she definitely has dad appeal. Yeah, <laughs> she does. Yeah, it's very uh, like seven of nine a couple decades earlier. Um, Zoe does a lot of screaming in this one, by the way. I mm-hmm, noticed that mm-hmm. <laughs> lots and lots of screaming. All right, let's let's talk about Jamie. Uh, Jamie gets his face swapped in the yeah. second episode yes. for reasons outside the the actual story reasons. Yeah, ja- the the actor got sick. Yeah, uh, uh, Fraser Hines, who plays Jamie, got chickenpox from mm. his nephews, and apparently he didn't get chickenpox as a child. He got it as an adult, and so he needed to take two weeks off from the show to recover from the chickenpox because it's extremely infectious. Right, and so they got a guy. Um, I have his name here somewhere. It's Hamish or- Hamish uh, Hamish Wilson, and there's a rumor that he's. Uh, that he's Fraser Hines's cousin, but that's not true. Um, he's unrelated to Fraser Hines, but Fraser Hines does have a cousin who appears as one of the toy soldiers mm. in this episode. So that may be the basis of the rumor. Um, but the way they handle it is the uh, Fraser has been, or Jamie has been turned into a 2D cutout of himself. And then, which the doctor finds, and then all of a sudden the face on the cutout vanishes and a whole bunch of strips of face components, like a strip of eye, several strips of eyes and several strips of noses and several chins appear on a wall next to the cutout. And the doctor says, oh, so I'm supposed to reconstruct his face. And he he grabs some strips and puts them on the face. And as just as he's realizing he's done it wrong, the 2D cutout animates and it's Hamish Wilson. Yep. And so he fills in for two weeks. And I thought this was a very clever way of, mm-hmm. of recasting the part for for a couple episodes. Um, then they this a similar thing happens a couple episodes later and he gets another chance to put the face together. And this time he gets Fraser Hines back. Um one of the things that this sequence reminded me of is a first doctor story. And this may be where they got the idea, but there's a first doctor story called the celestial toy maker. And in the select who, and the celestial toy maker is widely rumored and thought to be appearing in one of the um, specials in November mm-hmm. this year called the giggle. Um, but the celestial toy maker is this interdimensional being who likes to play games kind of like, 
the creatures in this episode. And so the doctor and Stephen and and um, I think it's Polly um, end up in this realm where the celestial toy maker is forcing them to play games that are a lot like the challenges in this. And at one point, the doctor himself is turned invisible. And the the original thought was when he turns visible again, he's turned invisible by the celestial toy maker. And when he, when the thought was when he turns visible again, it's not going to be um, it's not going to be William Hartnell. This was the original way they were going to recast the part of the doctor. It wasn't it wasn't going to be regeneration. He was going to be altered by the celestial toy maker. And they ended up not doing that. And instead, they gave us the 10th planet and regeneration, which I think is was a better decision for the long term view of the series. Yeah. Um, But it's kind of like they borrowed that idea here. It's like we need we got a problem with this actor. We need to have someone else in this role. Let's have a magical creature do something to him. And then his face gets different. Right. Yeah, see this, you know, this red coat that you only see twice. <laughs> and he shoots him both times because, of course, Jamie immediately, it's like, I'm not going to let the red coat kill me. So I'm going to kill the red co- coat. And then he gets shot twice. Right. He didn't learn his <laughs> lesson the first time. <laughs> because Jamie uh, was the last he saw of his home was the Battle of Culloden in mm-hmm. Scotland. Uh, so he's, that's still, uh, you know, present what? in his mind. Um you know, I was thinking about the whole regeneration thing. If we hadn't got regeneration, Doctor Who probably would have ended after the, the second Doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it almost how, how did gonna, anyway. Yeah. yeah, right, right. That's true. Um, so, uh, yeah, how would you have come up with that means of switching switching out actors? Um, so, which, which also underscores my point about how awesome Patrick Troughton is as the Doctor, because it very likely would have ended. After after the second doctor, if Patrick Troughton hadn't been so phenomenal as a successor mm-hmm. to William Hartnell, that people were interested in keeping the show going. So yeah. everything was writing on Patrick Troughton's performance as the doctor. Yep. That's right. So uh, what else we have? The So we have um, the master who has it's interesting. The, ma- the, the master, we see him when we first see him, he has two different voices, one gentle, one harsh. And we find out that it's Robotic. the master yep. brain speaking through him. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I thought that was interesting. He sort of has a third. I mean, he's got a normal human voice, which he speaks in most of the time. And then occasionally he'll turn robotic. And that's when the master brain computer is speaking through him. Mm-hmm. But then at the very end, after he's been freed from control by the intelligences, he we get him unaltered where he's he doesn't even remember where he is right so um he as far as he knows he's applying for a job in 1926 yeah and so we sort of get three versions of of him right right yeah it's his little story is interesting he's like a he's a pulp fiction writer basically Mm -hmm. i don't know do they have pulp fiction in oh yeah 26 yeah oh absolutely okay um so yeah that was that was interesting to you know that his story and that he wrote so many words uh you know a month for this magazine that he was a natural for the to be taken to the land of fiction only future girls math is bad when she does the she runs the numbers and says that's more than half a million words it's actually six million words 
<laughs> so she was off by a factor of 12. Well, she's correct. It is more than half a million. Right? <laughs> Just by a lot. Technically. <laughs> Technically. Yeah. And uh, actually, 1926, that was the golden age of pulps. That, uh, you, right. you had lots of stuff. I mean, they, they go back into the 19th century, at least. Um, and that's when Charles Dickens and so forth was writing. And also when Arthur Conan Doyle started writing. But... Um, but in like the 20s and 30s, you had weird tales. It was Ro um, uh, Robert E. Howard and oh, yeah. and H.P. Uh, uh, Lovecraft and Doc Savage and all that stuff was from that era. That's right. That's right. Now that you mention it, yeah, I remember. Um, I did. Speaking of the carcass, we we talked about the carcass a little already, and I think I referenced this briefly, but I, I need to bring it up again. Zoe. Going to town on the carcass, like she yeah. was throwing him all over the place. Yeah, that was a that was a neat bit. So if you if you look back in old comics, they'll have ads for like Charles Atlas's dynamic tension fitness system and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> and apparently the carcass had something an educational fitness component for children too, because after she's able to get rid of his superpowers. Um, she then beats him in a fight and she's like, Ooh, that was lesson 12. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. That's right. You kept mentioning the, the lessons. Uh, the, uh, at the, the, trying to think the, the battle of words between the master and the doctor, I, I got the sense that it felt, it felt a lot like a, either like a role-playing game or a progressive story where each, each person mm -hmm. involved mm -hmm. adds another element of the story and so they're kind of going back and forth uh yeah that, the, that's pretty uh, much what it was, was and they're using words to you know point counterpoint type of thing yeah and go it, and like you said progressively build the story without trying to fall into the trap of becoming part of the story this is sometimes you could think of this as but then storytelling where everybody <laughs> yeah. gets to add a yeah. but then and try to put the other person into a corner that's true yeah that that's that's a good that's a good party game uh, and the doctor uses a little bit of like verbal jujitsu on on him because he what he does is maneuvers him into incorporating him into the computer into the master brain so that he can then take it over and and you know s stop things stop the mm -hmm. whole the whole process. Uh, so I thought that was uh, very interesting. And um, the uh, episode uh, one of the things that I found interesting too is the episode ends without knowing if they survive. Now, obviously, they survive because the the show will is going to be on next week. Uh, but the they they all just disappear at the end, and then we see the TARDIS reassemble. But there's no, you know, clear, like, like the beginning of this episode, they we had started, you know, from the end of the, the Dominators. And well, this Dom, one, we don't know what's next. You'll have to tune in next week. Yeah. <laughs> Cliffhanger. <laughs> uh, so I thought that was uh, interesting. So um, what else was there? The, I, I just want to add one other note, which I thought was really interesting, was uh, cool for me personally, was uh, they mentioned some other works of literature from uh, British literature, um, Edith Nesbitt's Treasure Seekers with the Children with the Riddles. Mm -hmm. um, but they also mentioned Swallows and Amazons, which holds a special place in my heart because my, it's, a, it's a special. My family, we all have, as you know, parents and kids, have all enjoyed the Swallows and Amazon stories together. Um, as uh, as audible books on family mm. vacations, and they, uh, f folks, I want to recommend to you if you have kids, 
Get them the Swalls and Amazon series of books. They are the best. They are so great. Um, I, I love them. Uh, and, and if the Audible book versions are are fantastic as well. So uh, definitely get those for your for your kids. Uh, but that's all notes I have for this one. Uh, Father Quay, do you have any further notes well, we on this? Have, I also got a kick. We got we mentioned Rapunzel. Or how many times were people climbing up and down her hair? And of course, every time they'd pull her hair in the process. And yes, 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 um, that's true. Uh, so there's the the uh, the author who was the who became the master he was writing uh pulp fiction of captain jack harkaway and i wonder if that's where they got captain jack harkness yeah i thought the same thing it sounded very similar i wonder if, I wonder if yeah. that that was kind of something that russell t davies pulled out of the out of the the, the chest so to speak of doctor who mm, interesting that is interesting um yeah anything else that does it Oh, there's oh the other one is uh, yeah. there's a line about how only an Earthman can create fiction, and of course now we know that well that means the Doctor couldn't do it because he wasn't an Earthman, <laughs> right? That right. wasn't quite as well developed then as it yeah. is now. That's it. That was a that was an interesting assertion, by the way, that only people yeah. from Earth could make fiction. That was just a stupid line. Yeah, mm-hmm. because yeah, I mean, if you if you can be a space going uh, civilization you have to be able to imagine and fiction is just imagination you know just mm-hmm. the extension of imagination so yeah I, I didn't i didn't buy that one uh jimmy any notes for you so uh just to give a list of the of the fictional elements that we encounter in this mm-hmm. uh gulliver rapunzel medusa uh d'artagnan lancelot cyrano blackbeard the carcass um and i guess even though they're, they're they're spelling carcass with K's, I'm mm-hmm. guessing they're using it to mean the body. Yeah, you know the body because he's such a bodybuilder. Even though he's got a ridiculous fake body suit on that's <laughs> terribly obvious. <laughs> um, also, uh, Minotaur, which the doctor tells us is uh, is a, is a myth, and so that's how he and Zoe defeat the Minotaur. Except later, we're going to meet the Naimon. In the fourth mm, Doctor's yep. time, and in the eleventh Doctor's time, we're going to meet the horrible faith-eating Minotaur in the horrible oh, God oh, Complex yes. episode. Oh, that's so bad. We also have toy soldiers, the unicorn, and robots. Um, when they're in the void at the beginning, after Jamie and Zoe have come out, Jamie has this classic line that you hear a lot in old television and stuff. I've got a funny feeling we're being watched. Mm-hmm. That's actually been studied in parapsychology, <laughs> and humans have a better than random chance awareness of when they are being watched, even if there have been modern studies done. I mean, there's this is widely reported in the you know going back ages, and it's even been reported by like for example snipers. You know, when they're when they're about to kill somebody, they'll be looking at someone half a mile away through the rifle scope, and the person will turn around and look at them. And so parapsychologists decided to study this. And so they would they what they've done is they sat a person in a room in a chair behind the person. They've got a camera. The camera is hooked up to a monitor in another room and they've got an observer in the other room. And then they will randomly at different random times display the person's image on the monitor in the other room where you've got an observer and the person who's being observed can, with better than random chance, tell when someone's looking at the back of their head on the monitor. Hmm. 
So this has actually been studied. It turns out there's a basis for this. Um, I guess I would mm-hmm. I would point toward, uh, you know, evolutionary advantage yeah. in yeah. surviving when something is stalking you in the uh, forest well, at night. <laughs> absolutely. This is exactly the kind of thing you would want to evolve. And I wonder, too, if it, it has something to do with, you know, with quantum physics and stuff like that, where they talk about things being observed can change the state of it and all that. So mm. it it would appear and it may the role of quantum phenomena in parapsychology is widely discussed and debated. And a lot of what you hear about it is junk because a lot of people <laughs> notice superficial similarities between quantum concepts right. and parapsychological ones. But it may have a real role. Um, it and This would ostensibly seem to be a form of telepathy. Mm. Um, let, let's see. What else did I have? Um, I really liked the book that the the device, the way they visualized turning Jamie and Zoe into fictional characters so they would be under the master's control was pressing them between the pages of a book. Yeah. And that's I thought that was a great physicalization. And then the reverse of how they become real again is they they're inside the book and they regain their free will and they force the book open so they can get out of it. And I thought that was a very clever visualization of how to how how of how this all worked and gaining control of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think that's about it for me. Oh, I did. I did forget one more. Sorry. Mm-hmm. I, um, mm-hmm. Bernard Horsfell played uh, Gulliver. He was also Time Lord Chancellor Goth in Deadly yes. Assassin. And oh. there is a fan theory that it's really Goth here playing him. <laughs> <laughs> or it could be yeah. that, you know, there's, there's only so many faces in the Doctor Who universe and they repeat. Yeah. Yes. Right. Right. Uh, what was the book that Jamie and Zoe were pressed the, between the pages of? It was French, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I couldn't. I was going to look it up, see if it was a real book, and I forgot to do that when I finished watching. But um, in any case, it probably was. I'll leave that. I'll leave that to uh, the listeners to uh, to do that and uh, send in some feedback. Let me know uh, if if you uh, if you find it was a real book or not. All right, so that uh, completes our discussion of The Mind Robber, and uh, let us get to some of that listener feedback that I mentioned before. This is on our recent episode on The Time of the Daleks, which was an Eighth Doctor Big Finish story, and Ted writes in via email, I must say that this audio drama was quite forgettable. I listened to the audio play about a week before I listened to the podcast. When I started to listen to the podcast, the only thing that I remembered was that Daleks were somehow involved. Mm. Dom's recap filled in the story. It was confusing, and I agree with Father Corey's statement that it might have been a better story if it was visual. Yes. Um, yeah. So I didn't listen to this one because I was in the process of moving from California to Arkansas. Um, but I would note that I'm not – I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case because early on, Big Finish w- did not have the the level of writing muscle that it does now. Now, big finishes are uneven. Some of them are phenomenal, just better than anything that they've ever done on TV. Some of them are fine, and a few of them are, ugh. Um, but uh, but the, very early in their history, which is where we are with the Eighth Doctor, they hadn't yet built the extensive stable of really talented writers that they have now. Now, in order to begin writing for them, you have they have like an annual contest they do once a year. They let you write a short story. And if they make it, maybe they maybe they offer you further writing, but they don't even mm-hmm. accept submissions. 
uh, apart from that process anymore because they've got so many talented writers. Sure. Um, but early on, they 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 were still figuring things out and they were still building their stable. Well, it definitely yeah. sounds like they, they're just like the TV series. You know, sometimes you got great episodes, you got meh episodes, and you got bad episodes. So <laughs> they kind of yeah. just went right from the TV series on that. And, right. and also, like TV series, is usually they don't have the best stable of writers in their first season. Yep. That's something they build over over time. Right, and that and Ted's right. It, like I think it was my impression as well. Was you know, it just felt confusing? Like the well, vis- like I couldn't visualize what was going on at times. They had so many locations they went to and so much, you know, traveling and all this kind of stuff. And it just, yeah, it really yeah. got confusing yeah. quick. And and you you do need to force feed a certain amount of information to the audience that they won't be able to see visually. You don't want to be quite as obvious as some old time radio is, but you do need the equivalent of, wait, what are you doing with that gun? Yeah. <laughs> right, right. All right. So thank you, Ted, for your feedback. We appreciate that. So before we go, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Marina T, ECB, Javier P, Jude S, and Austin T. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Zyman Yannick, who edited this episode. So that's it from us. What did you think of the second Doctor story, The Mind Robber? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com, the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, send an email to Who at sqpn.com, or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. You can watch the Secrets of Doctor Who on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash starquestmedia, where you can comment and make sure to like and subscribe. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the ninth Doctor Big Finish story below there. This is a brand new series featuring nice. um, the ninth Christopher Doctor. Eccleston. Christopher Eccleston. <laughs> I should have wrote that down before I said it. Uh, so until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, Don. And Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, Don. And once again, I'm Don Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, when someone writes about an incident after it's happened, that's history. But when the writing comes first, that's fiction. Or prophecy. Prophecy.